1 Corinthians chapter 15, what we've been talking about, seeing God clearly. And today we're going to talk about the reality of the resurrection. So we, 1 Corinthians 15, I want to read the first eight verses. And I want to ask you guys to stand in God's honor as I read the verses aloud. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Let's pray. God, we come as we are, Lord. Broken and battered, but yielding to the one who is not. To our great God, who chose to meet us where we are by leaving the comforts of heaven, by coming as one of us, although more than us, the God-man who lived and died but did not stay in the grave, providing us hope. God, may that clear message come through a guy that's not always clear. Speak, Holy Spirit, in spite of my fumble. May it be clear that you do what you want to say to us. I thank you for each one here, those who are listening as well. Lord, Father, just continue to turn our attention toward you because you deserve it all, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Walking through a cemetery, it can be kind of creepy, but can also, it's pretty amazing when you look at tombstones. And on a tombstone, you see two dates, and in the middle of those two dates, there is a dash. What a significant dash, because the dash represents the life of the person. The date they were born, the date they died, and then that dash in the middle that goes by so quickly. Um, you know, I've been around long enough to see a, a lot of people die. Babies, elderly, and I'm not going to, I could take the whole hour just telling you, as <laughs> we all probably could, of people that we have known who have entered that portal known as death. Um, it, it's... Max Lucado described it as the bully on the block that follows us around and torments us at every corner because we know that death is around the corner. We just don't know which one. Um, 
anyway, some of the epitaphs that are on tombstones, very creative. And I want to share just a few uh, with you as we think about death and victory over death this morning. Um, Here lies an atheist all dressed up and nowhere to go. Found on one tombstone. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. Stepped on the gas instead of the brake. One tombstone shared uh, the epitaphs of a husband and wife on the same tombstone. On one side it said, I told you I was sick. And on the other side it said, and I was sick of hearing it. <laughs> Another said, now I know something you don't. Okay, and then uh, here's, oh boy, here lies my wife, here let her die, here let her lie, now she has peace and so do I. <laughs> boy, that's bad. Uh, and, and here's one that says, here lies Joyce, she would regather, but has no choice. She would, she would not, but has no choice. Here lies, uh, here's one of my favorites, here lies the body of old man Pease, buried beneath the flowers and trees. But peas ain't here, just the pot. Peas shelled out and went to God. And uh, here's the last one I'll close with. Um, Paul, strangers, when you pass me by, for as you are, so once was I. As I am now, so will you be. Then prepare unto death and follow me. But someone had etched into the stone beneath these words. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> and, and so as we think about this chapter, as we, as we think about death, which we're going to face unless the Lord Jesus first returns and takes us up in a different manner. But otherwise, we're going to face death. It is a part of life. It is something that awaits all of us. And yet, this whole chapter, it's 58 verses, and the focus of this chapter is resurrection. It is the fact that death is not the final word, that our lives will go on after these bodies perish. It's the hope of the resurrection. And yet, the real truth that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ is that the hope of our resurrection, our victory over death, is based first on another resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're, we're going to look at this morning as Paul lays out evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why we can have confidence in the fact that Jesus is not like other religious leaders who have lived and died. As he gives evidence, as he lays out that Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave, but he's alive. The evidence of the resurrection. So how? I mean, when you try to explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you, you know, you say evidence that, well, you know, it's, it's not like the scientific method where you can study in detail 
um, an experiment that you can do over and over again that will prove that Jesus Christ is alive. We don't really have uh, an experiment that we can use to prove that. Or, nor is there an equation that we can use to calculate that he is not dead, but alive. So what is the evidence that is being referred to here? Well, it is the evidence that's used in proof of what happened in history um, in other ways besides the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For example, with Abraham Lincoln, we believe he was the president, the 16th president of the United States, and that he was assassinated in 1865, but none of us are old enough to have been there or <laughs> to have personally met Abraham Lincoln and those people. So how do we know? Well, there are people who have written about Abraham Lincoln and about meeting Abraham Lincoln and working with Abraham Lincoln. And we even have part of the journals of Abraham Lincoln where he had written in a diary. There are pictures of Abraham Lincoln. As a matter of fact, I remember years ago, um, we went to the museum it was a presidential exhibit at the museum in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they actually had a plaster Paris face mask of Abraham Lincoln that they had cut in. They had blanket so you could see this is what Lincoln's face looked like. And so you have those types of evidence to give us some real evidence that Abraham Lincoln existed. And part of the evidence that we're looking at here today is the eyewitness accounts that are shared in this text that we will look at. But first, let's look at this first one here. This first evidence that is shared is the resurrection was anticipated by the scriptures, by the book that God has left with us, written for us. And I, th I think of Romans 15 verse 4 that tells us everything written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope so in that great verse we're, we're given two very significant reasons why we have the bible why we were able to use the bible Number one is so that we can keep going in the tough times. Encouragement taught in the scriptures that we don't have to live in defeat. No matter what we face, there is truth that God reveals to us that he shares with our hearts by his spirit as we read this book that gives us endurance to move on in those difficult, trying times. And secondly, he gives us encouragement. And what encouragement is is a shot of courage. Man, when you feel defeated, when you feel that you just possibly can't go on, there's hope. There's that shot of courage that he gives, that he provides in his words. And I, I think of Jesus when he was talking to the religious teachers who, man, thought they had all the answers and had it all together. 
And Jesus looked at them and he said, You guys study the scriptures because you believe that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so what he was saying is that this book, written over many generations, but there was a central focus. It points to me. He said, these are the scriptures that will lead you to me. That's why they're here, to ultimately point to me. Remember when Jesus died and he was raised, and two of his followers were on this road called the Emmaus Road. And as they were walking on the road, Jesus came up and walked beside them. But it tells us that they did not recognize Jesus. They were not sure who this stranger was. And Jesus began to talk to them. This is from Luke 24, 25 through 27. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Man, what a walk that must have been as they walked with Jesus and he just started going through the Bible. And we don't have the details of what he shared and how he shared. But as he went through this book, he made it evident that it was headed to him concerning him. What was said ultimately about him. Even before um, his disciples, as the time neared, he, he, he gathered them and, and he, he spoke to those um, who were following him. He said, a foolish and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. I'm sure they didn't understand when he spoke those words, but then later they would remember what he said, three days, three nights, and that he would come back to life. The Apostle Paul, as he stood before powerful men who were wanting to imprison him and some who would like to execute him, and he said these words in Acts 26, I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be first to rise from the dead as a light to the Jews, and to Gentiles alike. What's interesting about the scriptures is that in this book, some have estimated as much as one quarter of the book, 25% of this book is filled with predictions or prophecies of what will happen. And you, as you go through these, they point to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, the risen one, Prophecies that deal with his life and give details that could not possibly have been known hundreds and sometimes thousands of, of years before Jesus actually walked to the earth. But these prophecies, these predictions came to pass, thus validating 
who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. Matter of fact, in John 14, 29, he had described to the disciples of what would happen to him. Once again, I'm, I'm sure many of them were like, what are you talking about, Lord? Here's what he said to them. This is John 14, verse 29. I have told you now before it happens, so then when it does happen, you will believe. So the scriptures anticipated, anticipated Jesus and his death and his resurrection, that they would occur. And, and, and thus he, he tells us as he shares in verse 3, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He says, this is the priority, guys. <laughs> he, he says here that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So here's the next point as, as we look at evidences. The evidences occurred after his death. Well, you say, well, duh, you can't have a resurrection unless you have someone who's dead. Yet there were those who wanted to say Jesus didn't really die. There are theories out there of people who make these bold claims that he wasn't really dead. He just looked dead. And that, you know, he went into the tomb and he rested up and, you know, he, he felt better and he just pushed a two-ton rock aside, walked right out. You know. As a matter of fact, there was a book, very popular, written in 1965 called The Passover Plot. It was by Hugh Schoenfeld. And Schoenfeld, in that book, gave the theory that the disciples and Jesus had this well-thought-out plan. They planned to fake the death of Jesus. And so, you know, they gave Jesus this drug, you know, when he drank, and it knocked him unconscious. And, and then, you know, when they placed him in the tomb, it was cool in the tomb. And, and so he was able to rest and recuperate. And, you know, and, and so then he was finally able to, to wake up and be renewed and, and to walk out. And, the, of course, the problem with that crazy idea is what happened to Jesus before he was placed in the tomb. Man, he was beaten beyond recognition. If any of you have seen The Passion of the Christ, I can't even, it's hard for me to even watch it when they show the suffering of, of Jesus, how he suffered. But when you think about the suffering and all the loss of blood and, and, and the pain, and, and, and then remember when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because they were sure he was dead, and they took a spear and they placed it in his side. And, and so it... But to just wake up from that, no, I don't think so. Matter of fact, <laughs> uh, there was in uh, one article at Easter that was shared to a local newspaper. Guy wrote in, he said, uh, Our preacher on Easter said Jesus just swooned on the cross and then his disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Signed, sincerely bewildered. And I love the answer. Listen to this answer. Dear Bewildered, Beat your preacher with a heavy whip woven with sharpened metal and broken pottery 39 times. Nail him to a cross. Hang him out in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his side. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens. He wasn't just somewhat dead. Partially dead. 
Guys, he was dead. Listen to how the Gospels proclaim this. The Gospel of Matthew, he says, he yielded up his spirit. Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to come to you. He yielded up his spirit. Uh, Mark and Matthew say he breathed his last. It's his last breath in death. The Gospel of John, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And it's here that it's described that when the soldiers came by, you know, to do the usual check and break, his, break the legs, um, they didn't even do that because they were convinced that he was dead. When you think about the pain that he went through, and then he, he, was, he was so weak that when it came time to carry his cross, and by the way, he only carried that horizontal beam on the cross on his shoulders, and that weighed somewhere between probably 75 and 90 pounds. But he was not able to carry that cross. We know the story, the full distance that someone else had to step in to carry that cross because he was broken after that severe beating. He was at the verge of death and then, of course, died on that cross. That's what happened after his death. And then the last one, affirmed by witnesses. We see in our scripture, he gives the different witnesses, uh, starting at verse 5. He appeared to Peter, Simon Peter. Of course, one of the favorite characters of all of us, uh, because Peter was a guy who often had uh, regrets because he acted impulsively, and as a result of that impulsive action, did things, I'm sure Jesus would say, I don't think you should do that, Pete. You know, but he would do it anyway. And remember when uh, Jesus said, you guys are going to run away. Not Peter. Peter said, not me, Lord, I got this. I'll protect you. You have no worries, Lord, you got me. And of course, we know what happened. <laughs> he ran off. And then when uh, people said, hey, we saw you. Weren't you with that Jesus guy? No, 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 I didn't know him. Right, three times, rooster crows, he weeps bitterly. He's totally broken. The resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ appeared to him. But before that, what must it have been like? For, for Peter, as, as he felt that rejection, as he watched the death of Jesus, as he thought, where do I go from here? What do I do? And so he went back to doing what he'd always known. He went back to being a fisherman. But how could that fulfill Peter? After he had walked with Jesus, after he was so convinced, things are going to be different. And then he ended up going back to life as it was before Christ. And then I love that story. Where Jesus calls out to Peter. Peter's in the boat. Hey, Peter! You know? And what's Peter do? I love it because it, it tells us in the text that um, Peter had a, a, a robe or a cloak that was dry that was on the boat. And he puts the cloak on and he jumps in the water. Man, he's so excited. I, you know, why did he put something on just to get soaking wet? 
you know, just another evidence. Why would you throw that in there if it wasn't true in the scriptures? And he swims to Christ because he is so excited to see him. Because he's missed him so desperately. And Jesus reinstated him. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. But do you love me? I love you, Lord. Do you love me? Look at me. Feed my sheep. Peter, he was an eyewitness. He he saw Christ and, and, and Christ spoke to him and, and Christ reassured him. And, and then I love as you look at that first letter that Peter wrote, first Peter, in the first chapter, and, um, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter said, man, I was broken, but now I'm new. Because he's alive. The living hope that he has provided. And I'm giving my worship to him because it's only through him that that could occur. And then he he talks about the testimony next of the twelve. Well, we know one of those guys ended up being a defector. Of course, he wasn't there. Judas was out of the picture. Another one of the guys, you know, he wasn't there when there was that initial meeting where they were gathered in a room and they were sitting there and um, they were depressed and all of a sudden Jesus just shows up and Jesus says, Peace. What? They're thinking... Well, Thomas isn't there, so really there were ten, so what's the deal here? Well, when they referred to the twelve, it was just a, a common way to refer to those followers, that inner circle, the twelve. But really, at that point, really the ten, and of course Thomas would later have that chance to look at the resurrected Christ and say, my Lord, my God. He wanted to touch the place where the nails had hurt. Lord, but he didn't even have to do that when he saw the Christ. He believed the twelve or the ten or the eleven were able to declare he's alive. They were witnesses. William Lane Craig, an apologist, wrote these words, Without the belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. Even if they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have silenced any hope of his being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. It wasn't the end, and it's not our end. right? And then there's one more testimony that's talked about in our text in verse Six, it says, after that he appeared to more than 500 <laughs> of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 500. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine the conversations that must have happened around all those guys? Wow. 500 saw our Christ. And, and it says here, some were asleep, but what does this mean? Uh, it's believed that this was written like 25 years after the event. 
And so some of those people had already died. But there were still many around. He said, hey, find out some of the guys that are still here 25 years later and talk to them. They'll, they'll tell you firsthand what happened. Man, what a testimony to be able to hear something like that. Lee Strobel, who has written, uh, was an investigative reporter in Chicago, had written a gr uh, several books making uh, a case for the faith, a case for Christ. And uh, this is a quote from him. I thought this was interesting, talking about 500 eyewitnesses. If you were to put them on a witness stand, Strobel writes this. If we were holding a trial to determine the facts concerning the resurrection, and if we were to call to the witness stand every witness who personally encountered the resurrected Jesus, and we cross-examined them for only 15 minutes, and if we went around the clock without a break, we would be listening to first-hand testimony for more than 128 hours. That's over five days' worth of testimony. And then he closes by saying, who could be unconvinced at the end of that? All of those testimonies of Jesus. Now, um, the next one here that's mentioned is James. Now, you know, there several of the apostles were named James. Uh, there was James, this, one of the sons of Zebedee, you know, James and John, <coughs> sons of thunder. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. James left. And then there was another guy. I don't know which one it was, but I'll choose one. And there was Jesus' half-brother, James. Can you imagine being the brother of Jesus? You never want to know if you're up there. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. At some point, we don't, we don't know. At some point, you know, it, it tells us in Mark 3 that the whole family said, he's just crazy. He's out of his mind. Guys, he's lost it. Shh. But at some point, something changed. If James, this is the James that's listed here. He, he saw, he understood. He, he saw his half-brother in a new light. That he is the light, the light of the world. He's come to take away our, our sins and that are against God. And, and so, <laughs> testimony of James is shared. And then, that's what it says in verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as the one abnormally born. Of course, that's Paul when he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians. One abnormally born. Uh, I think in some translations I saw in the due time. The picture is Paul saying, you know, I'm not the same person that I was. That's what he means. He goes, I'm not talking about the first birth. I'm talking about this is a new birth. I, I've, my, everything's changed when I encountered Jesus. You see, when... He started out, his name was Saul, and Saul means asked for. He described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, a very capable religious teacher, very prestigious in what he had been able to accomplish in his studies. 
very zealous, he, a real warrior for God. And, and, and so he asked for, I'm sure he's the guy that would ask God, give me more of that. Give me more prominence. Give me more influence. Give me more understanding. Give me a bigger platform. Give me more influence. Because I, I love you, God, and I'm zealous for you, and I'm seeking you, and I'm in your corner. I'm your warrior fighting for you. And remember, his desire was to wipe out this new group that was referred to as the way, the followers of this man who died upon a cross and uh, came back to life, Jesus Christ. And so he literally went on a mission to imprison the followers of Jesus Christ, to take away their jobs, and in some cases to see them executed. Remember, he was at the stoning of Stephen. He watched as the life ebbed from Stephen's eyes as he took the blows of the, the rocks upon him. But he was headed to... Damascus on the Damascus Road. And suddenly as he's walking, he's blinded by light. And he falls to his knees. He's unable to see. And he hears a voice. And he, he responds and he says, Why are you? Here's a voice that says, Why are you persecuting me? And he says, Who are you? He says, I'm the Lord. Why are you persecuting me, Lord? Suddenly, this guy who thought he was the warrior, this guy that was fighting for God, suddenly he found himself on his knees, blinded, and, and realizing he's been fighting against the wrong one this whole time. The one he wanted to stomp out was the one he should worship. And he changed his name from Saul, which means asked for, to Paul. And you know what Paul means? It means little. He went from being the guy that said, <laughs> I'm asking God to make me somebody, to saying, God, I'm really a nobody. If I'm going to be anybody, it's going to be because of you in my life. And so he went from asking for big things to saying, I'm little. I need you, God, in my life to make things different for me. That was Paul, his testimony. The guy who went from I'm big to I'm little. <laughs> and he's sharing now what is big is God in my life. It's big. There's another theory. You know, I talked about the swoon theory, which was this idea that, you know, Jesus just woke up and, you know, he was all better and he just pushed the stone and walked out. Another theory, and it's called the hallucination theory. Well, you probably figure out. What that theory is, it is the idea that, you know, these 500 people just had a hallucination. Jesus really wasn't resurrected. They just thought he was resurrected. But uh, resurrections don't usually happen among 500 people at the same time. They happen in isolated cases, not in a big group of people. Secondly, they tend to happen to people who share some of the same emotional components. Um, and as you look at some of the people who saw Jesus, totally different backgrounds, totally different personalities. Um, there was Mary Magdalene. 
who was weeping. And she saw the resurrected Christ. There was a group of women who were just astonished. Like, wow. You know, what they saw. There was Peter, who was full of remorse. Just broken. Man, I blew it, God. Deep regrets. There was Thomas, who struggled with doubt. And then the people, that those guys that were on the road to Emmaus, that we talked about earlier, they were just disappointed. I really thought. All these people, they, they were different, but they all saw Christ. It was more than a hallucination. He was alive. They saw him. This, this group, he is the resurrection and the life, and that the one who believes in him, though he may die, he shall live. And Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. There is that conclusive hope that he gives. And it is the message of the gospel. It is the foundation, the resurrection. No other leader or religious movements died and came back to life. That's Jesus. Thus, he is the only one who can make that dash mean more than just something between two fixed dates. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I, um, I thank you for the fact that what we have is a hope that is not merely based on what we can accomplish, what we can achieve, but it is based upon a God who sought us out, who paid a price that he didn't owe so that we could pay a debt that we couldn't pay. And God, I pray this morning as we think about who you are, Father, may we worship. Help us to see, Lord, that you are the risen one. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that if Jesus is not raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. So we place that hope in the fact that you are alive, and through the life you provide, Lord, we will live beyond the dash between two dates. We'll live with you Father, what a great day for anyone who has not said yes to the invitation that you provide to just trust you and to find forgiveness and to find new life and to find the power to face each day that is from you and not just from us. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to us and just work through us as we hear from you. May we respond whether it's to come to an altar and just to pray and to ask for God's intervention in our lives. Or whether it's to make a decision right where we are that, yeah, you are the risen Christ and you died for me and I want to follow you. Or, Father, I'm sorry that I'm just not being honest in following you and I need, I need to trust you and let go of some decisions I'm making that are not in agreement with claiming I'm yours. 
God, I just want you to be honored in this time. And so as we have this time that we call invitation and response, and God, may we just hear from you and just see what you ask us. In your name we pray.